0: of living in Jerusalem also meant facing life under Israeli occupation, crossing checkpoints, navigating the separation wall, witnessing my people brutalized and dehumanized. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. Intifada. This is the Electronic
1: Intifada Podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman.
0: And I'm Asa
1: winstead Stanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. During the Israeli assault on Gaza this past May, hundreds of musicians from around the world pledged to refuse to book shows in Israel. Major artists, including Rage Against the Machine, Patti Smith, No Name, Vic Mensa, Thurston Moore, and Run the Jewels, signed the pledge to, quote, speak together and demand justice, dignity, and the right to self-determination for the Palestinian people and all who are fighting colonial dispossession and violence across the planet. Today we'll be speaking with two musicians, activists, and leading organizers of the Musicians for Palestine initiative, Stefan Christoph and Jesse Stein, to talk about the second wave of signatories and a new list of names that will be out very soon. Stefan and Jesse, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: uh, Stefan, let's start with you. Uh, talk about the initiative, what Musicians for Palestine is and why it's significant that there are so many new names being added to this list. You know, Usually we see this uh, very often when Israel attacks Gaza, there's a wave of activism and then, you know, the voices kind of die down as soon as there's a ceasefire. But this is different. Um, talk about this campaign.
3: Well, I mean, beyond simply uh, responding to, say for example, uh, an artist that chose to break the boycott picket line um, and play a concert in Israel, that type of initiative is very important. Um, um, Appealing to artists to support the Palestinian call for boycott divestment and sanctions against the Israeli state, that is super important. This initiative, is, is building on a lot of those efforts, but is also very rooted in, in community and try, trying to sustain and to facilitate and to nurture a global network of artists, um, musicians specifically around the world that can speak together in support of Palestinian human rights within the context of you know, um, very horrendous war crimes, which we saw in, in May. Uh, against the Palestinian people in Gaza particularly, but also beyond that to think about the more systemic long-term violence of Israeli state policies of apartheid and occupation. So this is trying to, yes, respond to particular situations, but also to think in a constructive way What as to what we can do together as musicians to speak to this reality in the long-term and also outside of the news cycle headline. Um, Can
1: you talk about the letter itself? Uh, We'll show it here on the screen for our viewers. Talk about what the pledge says and the process of of getting these hundreds of artists, some backed by large record companies and many independent artists to sign on. Um, Jesse, can you talk about that?
2: Certainly. Um, So the letter uh, has this reiterated phrase uh, where we say that we commit to not being silent, which is, you know, a little play on the act of being a musician. We're noisemakers. Um, But uh, in signing the the Musicians for Palestine letter, musicians have committed to speaking out about what we know to have long been the case, it, which is like the major oppression of Palestinian people, the occupation of their lands um, and all of the nefarious forms that this takes uh, As well as committing to the material action of not playing as you mentioned earlier um, in institutions that are backed by the Israeli state or that are in Israel. Um, so that commitment to, to to speaking out is a really important part of the letter because it demands that each of us make noise in our own networks. And one of the really interesting and exciting things about this letter is that um, it attracted signatories from all over the world. We really had quite a diverse body of musicians, not only in terms of genre, but especially in terms of their geographic locale. So people coming from all sorts of different places signed this letter and each of them are tapped into different communities of people. And I think that that kind of gets to something that Stefan said earlier, which is, um, you know doing what we can as musicians, it's not always there's not always a direct line from the art we make uh, and the artistic communities in, in which we live and our politics, especially when we're speaking to an issue that may be far away from us personally. Um, So what's interesting is that as a kind of diffuse network of musicians, if we use each of our spaces, both like media spaces and our actual physical spaces in which we gather and play music to have conversations about what's going on in Palestine and to take a stand on these issues, um, that is like one of the things that we can do. We We can make a conversation that should long have been very much at the forefront of what people are thinking about, and has been certainly for many people, but for those around the world who maybe have not been thinking about Palestine so much, this is an opportunity to be introduced to what's going on there and to our perspective on it.
3: Um, Jesse, do you think since May, since Israel's last major attack on Gaza in May, do you think there's been a shift in artists' attitudes more towards supporting BDS, do you think it, do you think you've seen that more recently? Um, and if so, what do you attribute to that?
2: Um, yeah, certainly, I I do think that there has been an increase in support for for BDS. Uh, just just to be very clear, like our although personally I support BDS and many of the signatories do, the letter doesn't explicitly engage with BDS as. Uh, as a framework, although we do share many very similar values um, and and like I said, I personally support BDS. I have noticed that in the communities in which I have direct access, that there is an increase in visibility in, in BDS and people seem more comfortable with the idea. I think that that definitely has to do with Black Lives Matter taking a stand and people um, becoming more politicized with the uprisings in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. I think that it also has to do with the obviously the very long standing work that people in BDS have done to raise awareness of what's going on and the people on the ground in Palestine who have been showing up in Jerusalem showing up every day to these protests and becoming a little bit more um, a, a forefront story in the international media. Um, I think also very important have, have been certain Jewish solidarity groups that have contested the notion that um, supporting Palestinian human rights is anti-Semitic, which is a very crucial crucial work. Um, yeah, so that's how I would place it. Um, it's been nice to see people engaging with it a little bit more um, more comfortably. I think it's very important.
1: And Stefan, did you want to add? Uh, did you want to add to that?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to always underline that whatever initiative um, takes place, uh, Musicians for Palestine in this context builds on a history of organizing. And I think locating actions that are happening now within a trajectory allows us to see that, I mean, whether we're talking about the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement that you know, only launched in 2005 with the call of Palestinian civil society, but I mean, that's obviously rooted going back to the 1960s and 70s and the um, organizing of the, you know, the Lebanese Communist Party, for example, or like uh, left organizations within the global south who pushed for many years to try to raise awareness globally around the importance of a collective economic action against the American National Congress, the ANC uh, solidarity in the 1980s in Central America. Um, so there's this context and history, and I think that that is really important in locating also our choice to really try through this letter to um, make sure that the geographical location of the artists is global. So I'll just highlight the fact that quite a few of the artists who signed were from Chile, for example, and like Las Tisas Collective, for example, helped us in gathering is really important to underline. That's the collective, of course, that um, in Chile was central to raising the feminist um, uh, critique of systemic patriarchy and state violence in Chile, but was that um, the global nature of the signatories reflects also the global nature of solidarity efforts that have happened over generations. And so it's really exciting in that sense that I, I do see also our capacity to speak with artists around the world and their interest in uh, in Palestine directly.
1: And both of you talk a little bit about the so-called silent boycott, where artists just don't book gigs in Israel to begin with. Um, what the impact of that you think has been on Israeli cultural institutions, um, as well as the impact of the very visible boycott campaigns where artists dump their gigs in, in Tel Aviv, for example, after global pressure, or sign a pledge like like the Musicians for Palestine letter and say, initially, we will never um, perform in, in Israel.
3: Yeah, so I think, um, like, I just want to be really clear, like, in terms of, like, also, like, in Montreal locally, where I'm, uh, where I live, um, I worked on this concert series called uh, Artists Against Apartheid, and we had 23 concerts over about five years, six years, and it was really about like a creative response to the situation to be taking action, but also to create a space for musicians to express themselves to create work for musicians from different bands to collaborate. Um, And so I think that it's it's about building power on, on our terms. So Musicians for Palestine is more a global initiative, but it's about saying, yes, okay, we don't want to see artists being booked in concerts that are about uh, uh, creating cultural capital that covers Israeli war crimes. And that's really what the role is of, you know, in the context of Israel. Listeners of this podcast know that but I think it's also important to think about our power. And that's really what this letter is about, right? Like it's about responding to the BDS call. We made sure to communicate clearly and to review the letter and the process with the Palestinian campaign for an academic and cultural boycott of Israel, PACB and the BNC the boycott national council, but it's also autonomous. And in the, in the sense that um, it's, it's as happening as part of that global network, but it's also an initiative that I hope can say that well, we're doing things on our terms, and we're saying, you know, for example, we're going to release a podcast soon, which is about conversations with different artists that um, that uh, signed the letter. And a lot of a lot of musicians have written us, like many hundreds, since this letter came out, saying they want to join. And many people are sharing ideas, right? So I I think that what's interesting is that. Yes, it's grounded in taking that action, but it's also saying we can grow something, building on all the amazing initiatives around the world. Um, This one, we were lucky to get a lot of support from high profile musicians, and that also didn't happen in a vacuum. Some of those high profile musicians that supported, there were conversations for a number of years with people to encourage them to consider Um, speaking out about Palestinian human rights, but it took time, right? So it's also these things don't happen overnight, Um, but it's about our power and to say together as musicians, we refuse silence.
1: Um, If you could uh, let our listeners and viewers know where they can find the letter and um, what kind of process it is to sign the pledge if they're a musician and wanna add their name to the the list. and, uh, and and also talk a little bit about your own music, both of you, and, and where we can find your music online.
2: Well, people who are interested in reading the letter and who discover that they would like to sign it upon reading the letter um, can do so at the website www.musiciansforpalestine.com. Snappy little name. and. <laughs> um, and the process for for signing the letter is, it begins with sending us a message um, through through the website and then we take it from there because um, we have to verify people's identity uh, in order to add them to the official next round of the letter, um, which will happen in the coming months. Um, yeah. And as for, for music, um, I've long played in a project called the Lujas, which is, a weirdo little rock band um, based in Montreal. And it's very fun. And if you Google us, you will discover many flattering and unflattering photographs and
3: videos.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great.
1: Thanks, Jesse and Stefan.
3: Um, Yeah, what Jesse said, Um, we're trying to prepare for a launch in the fall of a second wave of signatories. It's about community building too, right? Um, So I think that in the end, we'll probably have about 1000 additional musicians signing it seems, Um, but as, as was mentioned, we wanna verify and also create communication. So it's not like just you sign online and then that's it, right? So we're actually trying to correspond with each person as a way of like building that network. So we can say in the future, like, oh, well, there's a Palestinian hunger strike going on within the prisons, right? So we can then share the information with all the musicians. And it's not this sort of like hole of the internet where there's no actual human connection with the people who signed this letter. Like I can say that all of the initial signatories on musiciansforpalestine.com, there's a personal connection and there's some sort of human connection that, that, me that's why the signatory is there right so we're going through a similar process for the second uh letter i I play music too um i play like instrumental music um it's quite experimental um and i just played a show in sofia bulgaria last week (laughs) at the national radio wow um and yeah that was super special experience so i play piano um and Um, I play a lot with different musicians. Uh, It's under my name, Stefan Kristoff.
2: Stefan has a beautiful project with Sam Shalabi, which I encourage everybody to listen to.
1: Love it. And uh, we'll link to, uh, you know, uh, of course, musiciansforpalestine.com, but as you know, and we'll also add links to your music, both of you. Um, as well on the Electronic Intifada podcast blog post that accompanies this episode. Um, Jesse Stein and Stefan Christoph of Musicians for Palestine. Thank you both so much for coming on the Electronic Intifada podcast and, and keep us posted on this campaign. And coming up next, an interview with author and educator Mona Halaby about her new memoir, In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mona Hajar Halabi, a writer, educator, and the author of In My Mother's Footsteps A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home, which was published in early August. Mona, it's so good to see you and and to have you on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.
1: So let's dig into your book by first talking about your own family's history. Uh, Your memoir is about a series of displacements uh, faced by multiple generations in Palestine, Lebanon, Egypt, um, and how you found yourself back in Jerusalem as an adult, tracing your mother's childhood and living there for a year or so yourself. Um, Can you give us a snapshot of your family's Palestinian story and what brought you back to Palestine?
0: Yes, of course. You know, um, I grew up in exile, basically, as the daughter of a refugee, and then later on, a refugee myself from Egypt as a child. And the story that was prevalent in our household was my mother's Palestinian story. My father did not feel Egyptian or Syrian. His family's from Syria. He was born in Alexandria, Egypt. And so he did not speak very much about any sense of attachment to his homeland. But my mother spoke about Palestine, told stories about Palestine. Some of them were sad and understandably, you know, nostalgic about the time she had there that was ripped away from her life. Her home was, you know, taken away and she could never return to it after she had gone for what she thought was a couple of weeks until the bombing subsided. And then she couldn't return. So, in many ways, um, her story was a story of loss, but she was such a good storyteller that she also told me all the things she loved about Palestine. And um, I became uh, you know, more and more uh, you know, feverishly wanting to get the whole story before she's not with us anymore, which is you know, the race against time with that generation. Uh, she was born in 1923. So I interviewed her in, in 2003, and it was for what I, at the time, thought it was, was what I wanted to create, was a self-published book about her life history. But in the meantime, as I was interviewing her and collecting all those stories from her, I have seven hours of audio tapes, which is wonderful. So I, I had a lot to go by. I was invited to teach uh, conflict resolution and nonviolent communication at the Ramallah Friends School. And so I embarked on that and started to write a journal while I was there. The journal, you know, encompassed my experiences firsthand of what I saw happening to the Palestinians under the, the brutality of the occupation. Or now, I don't like to call it occupation anymore. I like to call it uh, colonial colonialism because it's not occupation. Occupation is a is is usually temporary, but this is the colonization of Palestine. And so I was um, I was very uh, I was in the midst of living that experience of what was happening, the harsh realities on the ground but also I was falling in love with the people, the food, the generosity, the the hospitality. And that's when I decided after I did, I had my year teaching at the Ramallah Friends School um, that I was going to be writing a book in two voices, my mother's story. I was lucky that she wrote to me nine letters which are in the book. Um, So you could hear her voice basically and my experience at the Ramallah Friend School and my search for not my identity because I was already feeling very Palestinian, um, but um, you know it rooted me and I found an internal peace that I never had before after living there for a year. So that's how it came about and that's how I ended up there.
1: Mm. Um, talk a little bit about your mother, Zakia, um, and the neighborhood in Jerusalem that she grew up in and was expelled from.
0: She lived in the Lower Baccha, which is a neighborhood uh, in West Jerusalem, one of several neighborhoods in West Jerusalem uh, that, that were um, invaded and uh, you know, confiscated by, by the state of Israel. They were not going to be, nor- the partition plan from the United Nations in 1947, um, did not include West Jerusalem in the state of Israel. So they were conquered uh, or you know, or you know, you can use the verb that you want to use to say that they were taken illegally uh, from the Palestinians. So that the, Baka was one of them. There was Lower Baka where my mother lived, and there's Upper Baka, um, Katamon, um, Talbiye, the German colony, and the Greek colony. So they were clustered together. Um, they they were neighborhoods that were created at uh, the end of the 19th uh, century by Palestinians, uh, Jerusalemites, who lived in the overcrowded and uh, and cold and, um, you know, humid uh, uh, parts of the old city, because the old city is all stone And there's very little greenery. There's really no land. It's gorgeous. And you can see it in the the photo in my background. Um, You know, I I loved, I fell in love with the old city. Um, But for families, it it was better for them to move outside of the walls of the old city. And so those neighborhoods were created by uh, predominantly Prominently Christian Palestinians, but Muslim Fal- Palestinians as well, and there were some uh, Jewish Palestinian families as well that lived in those neighborhoods. My mother had a middle class, you know, upbringing. I would say they were they were ne- they never had enough money. Was not a family that was driven by financial success, but they were driven by intellectual success and stimulation and. She had a lovely education at the Templar uh, German Colony School, uh, which was a progressive school that was beyond belief for the 1920s and 30s. Um, It reminded me, of course, of uh, Park Day School, where I taught for many years, and the Mills College Lab School, where I taught before Park Day, where children are learning from doing and from thinking critically, you know, rather than... Uh, being dispensed knowledge and regurgitation. So she had that kind of open education. Her father had had studied at the University of Geneva in 1911, which is also something different. Um, He was also um, from Jaffa and he was a Muslim, a secular Muslim who married a Catholic. Um, And both families were totally happy with it, which you know, when I think about in 1918 19, they got married. My grandmother was eight years older than him, and they had this the happiest marriage ever. Their parents got along super well, their respective parents. So they my mother lived in an unconventional, modern, forward-thinking family, very tolerant family. And uh, sometimes people think that I've I've become that way as a person because I live in Berkeley but you know it comes from way back generations in my family it's in my DNA. Um, and so that neighborhood uh, was lively. people went to the YMCA which uh, had, Concerts and sports activities and lectures and a library. My mother had a library card. She and her brothers went there and uh, borrowed books and, and she sang in a in a band. Her brother played in that band. So it was a very rich and um and modern life. This was the urban Palestinian. And, and it's the minority when you think about it, because most of Palestine, 70% of Palestine before 1948 was agrarian, you know, and uh, so my mother was in that, that group of people that had access to education and to um, extracurricular activities and... Um, Sadly, um, you know, bombings started to happen uh, already in 1946 with the bombing of the King David Hotel, uh, the South Wing, which housed the uh, the Secretariat's office, the British government's office, um, and um, you know, almost 100 people perished uh, in this in this bombing. So that started to destabilize, you know, um, the life in Jerusalem. After that. Um, 1947 was the partition plan announcement from the UN, and that also brought about more strife between the, the Jews and the Arabs in Jerusalem and in other parts of Palestine. Um, so They they could see my family my mother's family could see the writing on the wall things were not going well they did not know of course the outcome I had no idea that they would ever be uh, expelled or driven out forcibly from their homes and never to be to return Um, so there were then bombings in their neighborhoods there was the Hotel Semiramis bombing in Katamon that affected a great deal the 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 loss of this neighborhood um that people just left in droves because they they were just so so worried about the safety of their children and
1: and this was by the Haganah know, militia yeah um, the primarily.
0: Haganah yeah. the Haganah primarily um mm-hmm. the Irgun also a little bit but the Haganah the paramilitary organization yeah so it was a very uh, very turbulent time um you know, young men like my, my, uh, my older uncle Dahoud used to, with his friends, um, you know, walk around the neighborhood in shifts at night just to make sure that there were no bombs placed around their houses. It, my mother wrote a letter in my book about, uh, that I have in my book and she describes how tense and hard that was my other younger my mother's other brother the younger one was very stressed out it was like ptsd every time he heard any noise he thought it was an attack and he was uh, you know s- struggling with that, that. it's it's a, obviously a, a stressor uh, a yeah. very big one and so my grandfather said to my mother take your brother afif the one who was suffering from um ptsd and, and go to egypt to stay with your aunt for a couple of weeks until things calm down. And of course, we know the story. Things did not calm down or did not allow um, Palestinian families, uh, 750,000 plus Palestinian families lost home property. Um, My mother and her family did not own their home. But they lost their home. They lost yeah. all their belongings, their beautiful books. Uh, my grandfather was a scholar and he had a lovely collection. And that collection is now at the uh, University, a uh, Hebrew university in Jerusalem, labeled abandoned property. Right. Well, it wasn't abandoned, you know. In my family's case in particular, um, the tragedy is that my uncle, who was in the house after the creation of the State of Israel, Uh, He remained there, my Uncle Dahoud, uh, and um, he was attacked basically by Israeli soldiers on the 22nd of uh, May, so a week after the creation of the State of Israel, handcuffed, blindfolded, and thrown into the back of a truck. Um, His dog was killed in front of him, um, and he was taken to a labor camp in Atlit, which is south of Haifa, for about a year, so he was missing for a year, Mm -hmm. which was very hard on my mother and um, on my uncle the other uncle and, and my grandfather so sometimes people you know will say to me well you left as though it was something by choice you know we did not the palestinians did not leave by choice either they were terrified by the bombings and wanted to make sure their families were safe or they were abducted like my uncle to vacate the neighborhood yeah. all the other young men in the neighborhood had the same Uh, fate, they were also handcuffed and blindfolded and, and, you know, dragged out of their homes. So the story was very, very tragic for my my mother's family um, and uh, for so many Palestinians. So we're not the only ones. The the one thing I feel guilty about, and I write about that in the book, is that my family was able to recover uh, with... They did not have money, but they recovered because they had family and they knew people and had connections. And my mother ended up um, meeting my father in Alexandria, marrying him. That's that's why I was born there. So it yeah. it makes me feel guilty that we had these advantages, which so many Palestinians did not have. And, and so many of them have, are spending not only their lives, but their children's lives, their grandchildren's lives, generation after generation. Now, seventy-three years of uh, camps, refugee camps, which are overcrowded, uh, poor, poor living conditions. The UN has schools in those camps and has um, and distributes uh, humanitarian supplies, but it's it's not life. You know, yeah. it's it's uh, almost like you're living in limbo and you're constantly reminded of what was lost and the younger generations want to return home because their parents their grandparents are telling them those stories and I'm glad about that and I feel guilty that I'm not there you know uh, I have that that guilt as well that I'm that I'm outside but I realized that being outside means I have a responsibility to tell the story and to educate people and, and to help as much as I can uh, you know, through philanthropic uh, organizations. So, so I have a responsibility, even if I'm not there in person. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, let's talk about teaching in Palestine. And for full disclosure, um, I remember when you took your academic leave from Park Day School because my own daughter was your student in third grade, just like a year or two after you came back. Um, In your memoir, you have these extraordinary stories about some of your students who were navigating growing up under the thumb of colonial, you know, colonialism and and occupation. Um, As a teacher with everything you know about child development, talk about what your students experienced every day uh, in Palestine and how that had shaped your work when you came back to Oakland.
0: You know, I was expecting uh, that the children at the Ramallah Friends School or in any part of uh, the occupied colonized uh, parts of Palestine w- would be suffering from stressors. Um, I, I, I did not know enough about the children in Darfur or in Kosovo or in uh, you know, Africa and Congo, uh, places where I know children suffered uh, in militarized zones and, and uh, in areas that are war torn. So I did a lot of research. Um, I read a lot of UNESCO reports on, on the, the well being of children. Um, Doctors Without Borders had also um, done a lot of work um, for counseling families in Gaza, especially, of course. And so I was preparing myself a little bit on how to handle that. I knew from the director that she was concerned um, because her students were so impulsive. Um, they were hyperactive, impulsive. They they talked incessantly. They had a lot of fears. Um, they were unable to focus um, in class. And so uh, I saw all those symptoms. They, they were very, very, you know, flagrant to me as a teacher who had been used to teaching in a more privileged part of the world in a relatively safe part of the world in comparison, where children could go out the door and go to school not fearing a bullet whizzing by them or or an Israeli tank passing by. Um, so so when I went there, I saw that the children were suffering. and I saw how, you know, the city is is under this false sense of safety. You know, you walk in Ramallah, you go to a cafe, you, feel, you have a chat with a friend, uh, you, you, you have that. But then you have, you know, the, the jeeps the, with the soldiers passing by. Sometimes they shoot at people. And while I was there, a 16-year-old was shot in the street and killed. Um, And there was a memorial on the sidewalk there, which reminded me every day of this innocent life that was taken just because he was standing uh, on the sidewalk. So that must bring about for all children when this boy died, we we talked a lot about that in the class meetings that I was having with the children, this sense of, you know, I can't be safe if I'm outside can't be safe anywhere. You know, the, the parents also are um, very, very uh, attached to their children in, in, a, in a healthy way, but also sometimes in an unhealthy way, but because they're, they're not permitting their children to move on to the next stage of development to become more autonomous, because there is no way of controlling the environment and making sure that they're safe. So it was it was clear to me that um, there was work to be done and my work was limited because I'm not a qualified psychotherapist. I, I know a lot about child development and I understood, understand young children, but I I knew that sometimes the issues were larger than what I could offer, that children and their families need, you know, some counseling and some support in ways that I could not provide but we had a counselor at the Ramallah Friends School uh, which is a wonderful thing that the school has a full-time counselor Adele and she worked a great deal with me. We we conducted class meetings together and she also provided children with what they call life skills which are very good uh, skills for critical thinking, making good choices so on and so forth which added to the the conflict resolution, because the children would would resort to fist fighting and shoving and pushing when they could not communicate to the other, um, you know, their, their grievance. And I feel that a lot of it, of course, comes from frustration. Um, they are very frustrated, but also from what they see on the news, what they see in the streets. So it, um, it was a challenging job, and I did the best I could, and I, they continue doing class meetings, so that makes me very happy that the seeds I planted are continuing to grow there. But there's a limit to what we can do, you know, which which was a hard lesson, you know. I I also want to say that I, I was um, worried going there uh, with my theories and my ideas because... I I wanted to be respectful of what was there. I did not want to come, you know, like a colonial power, you know, trying to to bring about change and meddling. So it's a very it's a very um, risky thing when you go to help people in uh, in troubled areas economically or or politically i I went with the sense that I'm going to learn and grow a great deal from that experience, uh, but that I was also going to be respectful and um and not meddle in in their ways but offer possibilities and options and solutions that could help
1: um, that's beautiful i i I want to talk a little bit about your mother and um Uh, and have you read a little bit from from the book as well but first uh, you you took your mother back to Palestine um, at the very end of her life along with your husband David your father and and other family members it's such a moving part of your book so much had changed since she was a child in Jerusalem and and now you were able to to be her guide Um, you, you talk about that and and bring her back to some of her roots there can you talk about that experience a little bit
0: Yes, it was a very, um, a very moving experience for me, um, and poignant too, because I I had so much wanted her to to show me Jerusalem with her own eyes, you know, uh, take me to her home, and of course the old city had remained the same, so she could take me to her grandmother's house, my great grandmother, and uh, that was lovely. But but West Jerusalem uh, has changed a great deal now, and I was the one then who was able to guide her, but she had given me very good instructions a few years prior uh, on how to find her mother's house, which had helped me and I write about that in the book. So I, I, um, I took her to her house and um, she, you know, she amazed me, Nora. She was, um, I, I thought she might become angry because you think, about someone who returns to some place that was taken away from her. But instead, she came with such an open heart. uh, For her, it was was like um, meeting again an old friend she hadn't seen for years. Uh, She was touching the, the stones, rubbing her hands on the stones on the outside of the house. Um, you know, sliding her fingers down the wrought iron iron work in front of the windows, she she stood there in front of the, the house and I asked to take her photograph and to me that photograph which is in the book and on my mantelpiece she looks you know so much younger you know than her age. she was 84 but to me she looks 20 years 30 years younger because she has this broad smile on her face and her eyes are you know glittering um, so that was very, very moving so she she was an amazing woman and i I hope I'm half as uh, half my mother's uh, you know I have half of her humanity. I would be happy if I have half of that. <laughs>
1: and I would be happy if you had that house back
0: <laughs> yes of course <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> I I would love uh for you to read some of your book um you know just like the, the and 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 once again just you know the, the importance of oral and written history at, at the time of the deliberate destruction of Palestinian life um you know around historic Palestine at that time and and um, and you know how how you were able to to weave your mother's intricate, detailed stories of her childhood into what you were um, experiencing, you know, just uh, what three, five, six decades later.
0: Yes, yeah. I I I chose. I thought a lot about what I wanted to read, and I think um, I wanted I wanted to read a piece that had to do with my arriving there and um, some some of the shocks and the pleasures I had in being an ordinary Palestinian. It's in the section called An Ordinary Palestinian. I quickly learned how to live the life of an ordinary Palestinian, buying my hot loaves of pita bread at the bakery down the street, a bar of olive oil soap at the corner market, or half a kilo of cucumbers, from farmers in their traditional embroidered dresses, sitting with their woven baskets on the steps inside Damascus Gate. Living in Jerusalem meant being awakened at five in the morning by the loudspeakers atop the mosques that emitted the languid melodious call to prayers. And on Sunday mornings, like the joyful laughter of children, the medley of church bells. But the reality of living in Jerusalem also meant facing life under Israeli occupation, crossing checkpoints, navigating the separation wall, witnessing my people brutalized and dehumanized. My American passport was a source of conflicting feelings. On the one hand, it buffered me and gained me access to places not permitted to local Palestinians, But on the other hand, it separated me from the native population, hampering me from living as a true Palestinian. At times, I felt guilty for holding in my hands this little slim blue book with its golden eagle embossed on the front that allowed me many advantages. One day, returning on the bus to Jerusalem from the village of Bejala, we were stopped at the checkpoint and asked to descend from the bus with our bags and belongings. We stood in a long line and watched the young, blonde Israeli soldier, dark glasses shielding her face, her hair pulled back under a khaki military cap. She condescendingly snapped at the Palestinians in front of me while fingering the edges of their IDs with visible disgust, as though she feared some sort of contamination. When my turn came, she glanced at the cover of my blue American passport and didn't even open it with the same hard face, she asked me something in Hebrew. I grimaced and asked, what did you say? Where do you come from? She asked with a strong Eastern European accent. I'm from California. She waved me back onto the bus, blindly honoring the US passport. How could it be easier for a US passport holder to travel around this land than someone whose whole family has lived here for generations? But the Palestinian spirit is resolute. Against all odds, the Palestinians have survived the occupation and over 70 years of displacement and dispossession. They are not thriving, for who could thrive when a 20-foot concrete wall is erected outside your window, separating you from your crops and your family, let alone blocking your share of sunlight? And who could thrive when turned back from a checkpoint to enter Jerusalem for medical treatment? and who could thrive when your home is demolished in the middle of the night and you are given only half an hour's notice to carry your sleeping children out of bed. The things we take for granted in America are things Palestinians have to fight for every day of their lives. Yet they continue to battle the injustices inflicted upon them in nonviolent ways by getting up every morning to tend to their office jobs, their sheep, their olive trees, their students, their patients, They line up for hours at Kalendia Checkpoint in Ramallah or Huwara Checkpoint in Nablus to be given permission to go about the daily business of living. They stand quietly and obediently at checkpoints that divide up their country into parcels while humiliated by young Israeli soldiers half their age. But Palestinians are strong and tough, like Saber, the cactus plant growing in their indigenous land and which also means an Arabic patience and endurance. Not only have they survived the ferocity of the occupation, but they have also done it with dignity and pride. They will not surrender their struggle for liberation.
1: Mona Hajar Halabi is the author of In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. We'll have the links to the book on the podcast page that accompanies this episode on the electronic intifada. Mona, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, it was a pleasure.
3: Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on Donate Now. Thank you.